Chapter 14 of To London Town. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gray Clayton. To London Town by Arthur Morrison. Chapter 14. But this launch was when Johnny's prentice teeth were cut, when the running down of bolts and pins was beneath his notice and he could be trusted with work at a small nibbling machine, when he had turned stop-valve spindles more than once, and felt secretly confident of his ability to cut a screw. Meantime, history was making at the shop, very slowly at first, it is true. The holly had been made the most of, but it seemed to attract not at all. Penneths and hapeths were most of the sales, and even they were few. Nan May grew haggard and desperate. Uncle Isaac had called once soon after the opening Saturday, but since had been a stranger. He had said that he was about to change his lodgings. He was a widower. But Nan knew nothing of his new address. In truth, such was Uncle Isaac's tenderness of heart, that he disliked the sight or complaint of distress, and, in the manner of many other people of similar tenderness, he betook himself as far as possible from the scene whereof, and kept there. It was within a few days of Christmas when things seemed hopeless. Johnny, indeed, had never ceased to hope till now. He had talked of the certainty of struggling on somehow till his wages were enough for all. Indeed, even the six shillings a week seemed something considerable now, though he knew that the rent alone came to ten. But even Johnny's cheerfulness fell in the face of the intenser dejection, the more open tears of his mother and sister as the days wore on. Long Hicks found him a quieter, less inquisitive boy, and a duller help than at first, and dinner at home was a sad make-believe. Each knew that the other two were contrasting the coming Christmas with the last. Then Grandad was with them, hale and merry, to look out of window was to look through a world of frosty twigs to woody deeps where the deer waited, timmy and shadowy, for the crusts flung out afar for them from the garden. Now, but there. But it was just at this desperate time that a change came, as by magic. The men who pulled down the wall at the opposite side of the street gave place to others who built a mighty brick pier on each side of the opening, a pier designed to carry its half of the new gate. But ere the work was near complete, men and boys from the yard found it a convenient place to slip out and in at on breakfast-time or dinner-time errands. Now it chanced at the time that one of these men was in a domestic difficulty, a difficulty that a large part of the eight or nine hundred men of the shipyard encountered, in turn, at more or less regular intervals. His wife inhabited the bedroom in company with a monthly nurse, while he roosted sleeplessly at night on a slippery horsehair couch in the parlour, or wallowed in a jumble of spare blankets and old coats on the floor, spending his home hours by day in desolate muddling in the kitchen, lost and incapable, and abject before the tyranny of the nurse. On dark mornings he made forlorn attempts at raking together a breakfast to carry with him to work, but, 
as he had taken no thought to put anything into the cupboard overnight, he found it no easy matter to extract a breakfast from it in the morning. So it came to pass that on the second day of his affliction, this bedeviled husband, his hunger merely aggravated by the stale lumps of bread he had thought to make shift on, issued forth at the new gate in quest of breakfast. There was little time, and most of the shops were a distance off. But just opposite was a flaming little chandler's shop, newly opened. It was thinly stocked enough, but it would be hard luck indeed if it did not hold something eatable. And so Nan May's first customer that day was the starved husband. "'Got anything to eat?' he asked, his ravening gaze piercing the bare corners of the shop. "'Got any bacon?' "'Yes, sir,' Nan May answered, reaching for the insignificant bit of streaky that was all she had. "'No, it cooked, I mean. Ain't you got any cold-boiled ock?' "'No, sir.' "'You ought to have some cooked ock. Lots that have it in the yard. I can't eat that. The smith's shop's the other end of the yard, and I got nothing to toast it with. Ain't you got nothing else?' Nan May grasped the situation and conceived an instant notion for indeed she had inborn talent as a shopkeeper, though till now it had had no chance to show itself. Will you wait five minutes? she asked. Yes, he would wait five minutes, but no more. And he sat on the empty case from which Uncle Isaac had delivered his recommendation of enterprise. Nan May cut two rashers and retired to the shop parlour. In three minutes the hungry customer was hammering on the counter, declaring that he could wait no longer. Pacified by assurances from within, he resigned himself to a minute and a half more of patience. When Mrs. May returned with a massive sandwich, wherein the two rashers, freshly frizzled, lay between two thick slices of bread. Lifting the top slice for a moment as a guarantee of good faith, Nan May exchanged the whole ration for threepence. If you'd like any cold-boiled bacon, sir, she said, I shall have some at one o'clock. He heard but was offered a trot with his sandwich. In five minutes Nan May's bonnet was on, and in five more Bessie was minding shop alone, while her mother hastened to Mr. Duncan's for a hock of bacon. Here was a possible chance of fortune, and Nan May was not a woman to waste a chance. Boiled and cooled, or cooled enough for the taste of hungry riveters, the hock stood in a dish on the counter at one o'clock, flanked by a carving knife and fork. A card bearing the best ten that Bessie could draw advertised the price, and the first quarter pound of slices was duly cut for the desolate husband, who came back a little later for two ounces more, for he had been ill-fed for two or three days, and the new baby made an event wherewith some extra expense was natural. Boys came for two other quarter pounds, so that it was plain that the first customer had told others, and a loaf was cut up to go with the bacon. Mrs May announced the new branch of trade to Johnny when he came to dinner, and though as yet the returns were small enough, there was a new chance, and his mother was hopeful of it. So he went back to the lathe with a lighter heart. That night the riveters worked overtime, and the bacon was in better demand still. More, at night two or three men took home a snack in paper for supper, and from that day things grew 
better daily. The hock was finished by the afternoon of the next day, and the establishment was out of pickles, for men and boys who brought their own cold meat with them came now for pickles. Trade was better as the days went on, and Christmas, though it found them poor enough, was none so sad a festival after all. And in a month, when the gate had been formally opened for some time, and the men streamed by in hundreds, three large hocks would really last two days, and there was an average profit of three shillings a hock. More, the bread came in daily in batches at trade prices, and cheese and pickles went merrily. But what went best, and what increased in sale even beyond this point, was the bacon. Some customers called it ham, which pleased Nam May, for indeed her cooking hit the popular taste, and she began to feel a pride in it. Men who went home to dinner would buy bacon to take home for tea, and as many of these lived in Harbour Lane and thereabout, customs soon came from their wives, in soap and candles, treacle and pepper and blacking. Nan May's trade instinct grew with exercise. She found the particular sort of bacon that best suited her purpose and her customers' tastes. She had regular boilings throughout the week. She quickly found the trick of judging the quality of whatever she bought, and she bought to the best use of her money. But here it must be said that Nan May, in her new prosperity, behaved towards one benefactor with an undutiful forgetfulness that was near ingratitude, for she bought almost nothing of Mr. Duncan. He was reasonably grieved. True, she had begun by getting her first stock of him, but even then her critical examination of what was sent showed an unworthily suspicious attitude of mind. She even sent back things and demanded better, willfully blind to the fact that Mr. Duncan could turn her out of the shop at a week's notice if he pleased though indeed in his own mind he was not vindictive, for another new tenant would be hard to find. He even submitted to outrage, ending in actual loss and humiliation, for a large tin of mustard was Mrs May's first supply, and it was a tin from among those kept for sale to small shopkeepers, and not on any account to be sold from retail across Mr Duncan's own counter. But something in the feel and taste of this mustard did not please Nan May, though indeed she was not asked to eat it, and it went back. Now it chanced that Mr Duncan had taken on a new shopman that week, and this bungling incapable straightway began selling mustard from the returned tin. He had served three customers before his blunder was perceived, and then the matter came to light purely because the third customer chanced to be a food and drug inspector. This functionary gravely announced himself as soon as he had good hold of the parcel, and handsomely offered the return of a third part of the mustard in a sealed packet. And the upshot was a fine of five pounds and costs for Mr Duncan, on the opinionative evidence of an analyst who talked of starch and turmeric and ginger, all very excellent substances, as anybody knows. Truly it was a vexatious blow for Mr Duncan, and an unjust, for certainly the fault was not his, and to sell such an article retail was wholly against his principles. But he never complained, such was his forbearance, never spoke of his hardship for a soul, in fact, except when he sacked the new assistant. 
It was even said that he had offered a reporter money to keep it out of the papers, and though it did get into the papers, and at good length too, yet the effort was kindly meant. For truly, it could but give Mrs May pain to learn that she had been the cause of Mr Duncan's misfortune, if she were a woman of any feelings at all. But as time went, he began to doubt if she were, for her custom dropped away to nothing. The rate at which Bacon was handed in from a cart of a firm somewhere in the borough was scandalous to behold. Before his very eyes, too, when he called for the rent. He employed a collector, but presently took to coming for the rent himself, that, by his presence and his manner, he might shame so thankless a tenant into some sense of decency, some order for bacon and mustard. He coughed gently and stared very hard at the incoming goods, but Nan May was in no wise abashed and gave the carman his directions with shameless composure. With his sympathetic stop full out, Mr Duncan asked how trade was, and Nan May answered in a proper shopkeeper terms that she mustn't grumble, with hums and purrs that led back through casual questions and answers to the stock he had first supplied, and asked her how she had done with this, and how that had gone off. But her answers were so artlessly direct, and so inconsiderately truthful, that good Mr Duncan was clean baffled, and reduced at last to a desperate hint that, if anything were wanted, he could take the order back with him. But he got no ordered. So he purred and hummed his way back into Harbour Lane and so away, and after a time the collector came in his stead. Mr. Duncan resolved to wait. He had some doubts of the permanence of this new prosperity in the shop. The place had never brought anybody a living yet, and he should not feel convinced till he had seen steady trade there for some time. Nan May's activities could always be kept from flagging by judicious increases of rent, and if the thing grew well established by her exertions, and was certain to continue a paying concern, why, here would be a new branch of Mr Duncan's business ready-made. It needed but a week's notice, given unexpectedly at a properly chosen time, when no neighbouring shop was to let, and a good stroke of business was happily completed. Mrs May would vanish, a man would go in to manage at a pound or twenty-five shillings a week, and his quarters, there would be no interruption to trade, for the outgoing tenant would naturally keep at work till the last minute to get every little she could, and Mr Duncan would have a new branch, paying very excellently, with no trouble to himself. Mr Duncan had established other branches in the same way, and found it a very simple and cheap arrangement. There was no risk of his own capital, no trouble in working up the trade, no cost of goodwill, and rent was coming in regularly while the tenant laboured with the zeal of a man who imagines he's working on his own benefit and his children's. The important thing was to give nothing but a weekly tenancy, else the tenant might find some time to get going somewhere near at hand, and so perhaps deprive Mr Duncan of the just reward of his sagacity, foresight and patience. But there was little difficulty in that matter. Beginners were timid and glad of a weekly tenancy, fearing the responsibility of anything longer at first. And afterwards, well, things were in a groove, and Mr Duncan was so very kind and sympathetic that it wasn't worthwhile to bother about a change. And by this method, Mr Duncan, judiciously selecting his purchases in shop property, 
had acquired two or three of his half-dozen branches and flourished exceedingly, which all kindly souls rejoiced to see. In the beginning he had no thought of this plan for the Harbour Lane shop, being mainly concerned to get a tenant, no matter in what trade, and, indeed, in his eye, the place was as little suited for chancery as for anything. Even now he must wait, for he doubted the lasting quality of the new prosperity. Better a few years of forbearance than a too hurried seizure of a weakening concern, to find little more than the same tenantless shop on his hands after all. And if it seemed that the trade owed anything to the personal qualities and connections of Mrs. May, well, it will be a simple thing to keep her on to manage instead of a man. It will be an act of benevolence, moreover, to an unfortunate widow, and come cheaper. But that was a matter for the future. Meanwhile, Nan May, active and confident, filled her shop by purchase from whatsoever factor sold best and cheapest, and travellers called for her orders. The hungry husband who first came for cooked bacon she always treated with a particular consideration, finding him good cuts. He ceased his regular visits in three weeks or less, and Nan May, taught by experience in her earlier London life, well guessed the cause of his coming. In the spring, three months or so later, great crowds thronged about the shipyard to see the launch of the battleship that, over time, had so long been worked on. And when the launch was over, this man and his wife, the man carrying the baby, came into the shop for something to celebrate the occasion at tea. The parents did not altogether comprehend Nan May's enthusiasm over the baby, which she took from its father's arms and danced merrily about the shop while customers waited. But they set it down to admiration of its personal beauty, though truly it was an ordinary slobbery baby enough. But he went away down the street in great state, triumphantly stabbing at its mouth with a sugar stick gripped by one hand and at its father's whiskers with that brandished in the other. End of chapter 14 Recording by Grey Clayton